Our scripture passage this evening comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 13, as we read verses 1 through 23. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it. Said, and, and all Israel heard it said that Saul was def- had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went, to, went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah to Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shul. Another company turned toward Beth Haron, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. 
But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his sons, had them, son had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Lord, we are needy and you are rich. We come empty-handed, asking for all that you would give us from your word tonight. Would you help us to see, to hear, and to understand all the good that you have for us here in your text? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I have no idea how surprising this is going to come to you, what I'm about to say. But when I was growing up, I had something of a rebellious attitude. Um, I grew up sort of, and now this might surprise you, I grew up sort of in the punk rock world. I know you think the punk rock scene in, in Kansas must have been really exciting. Well... It was, we didn't have any bands. We just wore chains and colored our hair weird uh, and listened to whatever was on the radio. Um, and when I was, went off to college, it was sort of the same. You know, I never really dressed like a punk, but I liked the music. And I was surrounded by people who did dress like punks. And there was something exciting about the rebelliousness, i got to be honest. Something exciting about really ticking off the grown-ups. You know, that nothing makes a grown-up's blood boil like a red mohawk that goes really, really high. Just really drives people crazy. And there's something fun about that. At least there certainly was, you know, at a certain age. But I think you probably also can admit that there does come a certain point where it loses its luster, if it ever had any. Um, most of my friends who wore the, uh, the wallet chains hanging down to their, to their knees and, uh, you know, big lime green mohawks on the tops of their head, uh, now they have children and pay taxes and drive minivans. And some of that has kind of gone away. And I, and I think you have to admit there would be something very sad and kind of pathetic about a dad driving his minivan, but he's still sporting his mohawk. You know, just some of those things just don't age very well. There comes that point where it's time to put away childish things. And here's the situation with Saul. Saul's a bit of a rebel. And there may be some, some folks who look at Saul and they say, you know, there's something charming about that fellow because he just doesn't quite have it together, and I connect with that. But there is something very serious about Saul, and there's a serious problem with Saul. And the, the problem is not that he's a rebel per se, it's that he's a spiritual rebel, which is far, far worse than if he had just put a mohawk on. And he's going to take the whole nation of Israel down with him if, if God is not gracious and if God doesn't intervene. That's the real problem in this situation. And, and of all the things we need to see tonight, the most important is this. In the midst of incredible human failures and rebellions, there is a comfort in knowing that God is always at work, that God is actually two steps ahead of our worst decisions. And we're going to start seeing that 
in the coming weeks that even as Saul is having a precipitous downward trend in his spiritual life, God is going to be and is already, he uses the present tense when he says he's seeking out a man after his own heart, that, that God is already at work planning for what happens when Saul's downfall actually takes place. And so tonight's passage is a story of faithlessness versus faithfulness, right? It's the faithlessness of Israel and its leadership, and it's the faithfulness of a loving God. And you see all of these things at play, and you see the tension that these things cause in the life of Israel as well. Let me show you what I mean as we we move through the text. First, we see a faithless people. So think about this with me, uh, sort of catch yourself up with where we're at in the narrative. When the text picks up tonight, it's been a year since Saul was made king. And remember this, it's also been a year since 1 Samuel chapter 10. And If you let your eyes flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 10, which you don't have to do, you can imagine in your mind that your eyes are flitting back to chapter 10. But if you let your eyes go back to chapter 10, what you actually see is Samuel saying something to Saul. And Samuel says, do what your hand finds to do. Now, in the Old Testament, do what your hand finds to do is a euphemism for attack them. It's, a, it's sort of a pleasant way of saying you need to attack these people. And so in chapter 10, Saul was told that he should make an assault upon the Philistines. And then that's the place where we hear this seven-day reference made. He's told then at that point, after you attack the Philistines, seven days later, Samuel is going to show up and he's going to offer the burnt offerings. And so, so think about the plan like this. The, the attack happens on the Philistines. When the attack happens on the Philistines, it's sort of like a trigger. And that trigger is what's then, and that attack is what's going to trigger Samuel to say, okay, time for me to go. And then Samuel's going to come seven days later and make the burnt offerings. So so Saul does what Samuel commands, but he waits a year before he actually does it. And so what does Saul do? He creates a standing army, not a really large one. He sends Jonathan to do the fighting. And Jonathan wins this defeat against the Philistine garrison. It's not a big garrison. A garrison is not incredibly large. It's a small victory. But what it does is it solidifies the combat that they have with the Philistines now. Uh, Some people sort of compare this to Pearl Harbor. Before Pearl Harbor, the United States and Japan had tension between them. Uh, It felt like things had started to reach a boiling point. It it wasn't entirely inconceivable that war was going to break out between these two nations. But Pearl Harbor is the moment that sort of seals it, that this is going to happen. Well, this garrison attack is something like that here. Before, all they had between Israel and the Philistines was was tension, and now it's full-on war. And by the way, this is not wrong of Saul. It's not wrong of Saul that he did this. The only thing wrong about Saul's attack on the Philistines is that it should have happened sooner. And this is, I suppose, this is, you know, this is God's land, and Saul was slow to obey, but he did ultimately obey. He did ultimately do what he was commanded to do. And, and perhaps there's a, a, just a brief lesson in this, that late obedience is better than no obedience at all. At least Saul ended up obeying God in the end. 
So when the Israelites defeat this garrison at Geba, the Philistines are are aroused. They gather their own army, and the army that comes out is much larger than the Israelites have. In fact, it's about ten times bigger than Israel's army. Now, here's the thing to notice. What do the people do? And I don't mean what do the leaders of Israel do, but I mean what do the average people, the people living in the land of Israel, do? Here's what they don't do. They don't stand and say, the Lord is with us. He told us not to be afraid. God is our king. He's going to protect us. Instead, the text says the opposite. It says the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Now look, the Philistines have just raised an army 10 times bigger than Israel's army. This action is understandable, right? From a human perspective, you can understand why they would be afraid. You can understand why they would want to hide. You can understand why they would want to find some kind of safety. But here is the reality. Even if we can relate to it, we have to call this what it is. It is raw cowardice. Because Israel has God as their Lord. He's their protector. He told them not to be afraid. And while the larger events here are a test of Saul, this moment right here is an opportunity for your average citizen in Israel, your average Israelite, to put their faith in God into action, isn't it? I mean, this is is one of those moments where you can find out what what the people of Israel are made of. We know what the leadership is made of. We know what a disappointment Saul is. But what about the people? And so I just want you to see here that not everything that happens here is a reflection on Saul. Not all of this passage is sort of a shame on Saul, shame on Saul, shame on Saul kind of a a narrative. Notice this. Faithlessness isn't just a top-down problem. It is a grassroots problem in Israel. I mean, think about this. The most common command that God ever gives his people in the Bible is the command, do not be afraid. Now, humanly speaking, they have a lot of reasons to be afraid. An army 10 times bigger than your own army is a reason to be afraid. And, and for Christians, I think for, for each of us, we have to live with this reality that we oftentimes do not have a faith that matches our God. Circumstances will oftentimes dictate one thing, and then the promise of God dictates another. That's where temptation comes from. And, and it's in these moments where the situation doesn't make worldly sense that we're called to step out in faith. You know, at a certain point, all of our planning and all of our ideas will only get us so far. And that is the part where we must trust the Lord who has called us. See this, the citizens of Israel are being tested here. They're being tested. I mean, maybe they don't see it this way. Maybe they just see this as a moment for self-preservation. But they're being tested by means of these circumstances. The command of God is to not fear. And the temptation in this moment is the temptation to incredible fear. Now, as Christians, you know, we can talk about faith all we want. We can be big talkers. We are big talkers. I'm a big talker, right? We talk about faith constantly. How often do we really get to put our feet on the ground and actually put our faith into action in everyday life? Often we don't get to see how strong our faith is until it actually gets tested, until that moment actually comes. 
And um, this is a story I've, I've told part of it before, especially when I'm talking about anxiety, because this is something I've battled in my life. But I, I and this is a story where I don't come out as a hero, by the way. Um, all through seminary, I believed that I had a strong faith in God. I, I had written articles on apologetics and defending the faith. Uh, I had preached almost every week for four years. I had read dozens of books on defending the faith, the truthfulness of Christianity. I had listened to over 100 hours of debates on the existence of God and the truths of Christ. And so if you ever saw someone who really ought to have had strong faith, I felt like it was me. I felt like it was me. And, and I've, I've, again, I've shared this before. It won't come as news to you all, but about a month before I graduated, Something started to happen. I started to feel that pain radiating across my chest. It ached constantly. I was always worried. I was wondering, where am I going to go when I I graduate? Where is God going to send me? Will I measure up? Will I fail? Will people hate me? What's going to happen? And what happened was the worry and anxiety began to build. The fear became overwhelming. And on top of all of that, I didn't identify anxiety for what it was. And so I had decided I was in the process of dying. I really had. I decided I was in the process of dying. And I remember the the night I just laid on the floor and I cried and I told Aaron, I need to go upstairs. I need to hug our kids. I need to kiss our kids goodnight. I think I'm going to have a heart attack and die tonight. I had really decided that was going to happen. Now, spoiler alert, I didn't die. But I did have a very serious case of fear. In a moment, when I had an opportunity to take all the things I thought that I believed and knew, this was my chance to put those things into practice. And it turns out all those books, all those debates, all that ability to argue, that philosophy degree, all that stuff, at the end of the day, it took a little breeze to blow me over. And show me just how weak my faith really was. It turns out I was not strong at all. I didn't have strong faith at all. All of that knowledge didn't help me. And it turns out I wouldn't have even known that, by the way. If I had not experienced that, I would have left seminary. Probably a gigantically puffed up individual, really uh, thinking very highly of myself and wondering why other people struggle so much. And God used that to change me. He used it to humble me. The point of what I'm saying is this. You do not know the quality of your faith until it has been put to the test. And those opportunities to see what our faith is made of come far less often than we might think. See, here's the truth. How you respond in your heart when testing comes is the whole point of testing. People may never see what's going on in here But God does. God does see. He does see whether you trust him. What is he going to see when he looks in? Will he see you steadfastly clinging to him? Or will he see somebody scrambling to get under the rocks or the tombs or whatever you can find? During that season of my life, I was scrambling to get under the rocks. I really was. And I look back on that season with regret. And I wish with all my heart I had stood firm I wish that I had given God glory. I wish that I had trusted him, whatever was coming. I wish that I had remembered that he only has my good in mind, that he only is working for the good of my soul, and that I didn't need to fear. 
Every time of testing is a moment for you and me to tell the world and to tell God, you are a great God who is worth trusting. Every single time you're tested, it's an opportunity to say that. Israel had an opportunity to do that here, and they failed. They hid under the rocks. I'll just say one more thing, which is this. When you read 1 Samuel, it's really easy to just point at Saul, to just point at Israel's leadership and to think, you know, if only Israel had had better leaders, things really would have turned out better for them. But look, what we see here completely goes against that because what's going on? The average Israelite has the same problem that their leaders have, right? They have leaders they deserve. They don't have the leaders that they need. And that is because the average citizen in Israel is faithless too. In America, it's not unusual for us to pray for godly leaders, and we should do that. And Paul reminds us that that is very important for us to pray for our our leaders. But make no mistake, our nation is not exclusively in trouble because of our leaders. We are in trouble because quietly, one soul at a time, people have rejected the Lord. It starts with each of us in our own heart. It spreads to our own family and our own home. Then it spreads to those around us. It spreads to our community. And ultimately, it touches the nation. Whatever the individual is like, that is where the problems actually come from in society. Righteous leaders are a great blessing. But righteous individuals with righteous homes and righteous churches in righteous cities are a far greater blessing than a single leader who is a righteous person. So so don't discount the importance of personal responsibility for our life and our soul and our actions before God, the first thing we see is not a faithless leader. It's a faithless people. The faithless people really stand out here. Now, second tonight, we see a faithless king. So the people are responsible, as we saw, but the real focus of our passage is on Saul. Now, I mentioned this before, but Samuel told him, he said, once the attack against the Philistines happens, wait seven days Then I'll come offer the burnt offerings. And then verse 8 says this. It says, he waited seven days, the point, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So so picture the scenario, right? He's just made this attack. The enemy has built up their army and it's terrifyingly large. He's losing the people's trust. He is trembling himself. Of all the moments in the Bible where you sort of look down on Saul, this is maybe not one of those moments. This is understandable. You can imagine how you would feel if you were the leader of an army and an army ten times bigger was standing in front of you about to crush you. And yes, you had just made them very angry. So the situation's dire. There's, there's little reason for human hope. He's, he's losing the confidence of people around him. And so in his eyes, he is between a rock and a hard place. What am I supposed to do? And so what does he do? He turns to his own reason. He says, I'm going to think my way out of this situation. And he says, I know what I need to do. If I want the favor of God, I've got to make this offering. See, this is a man of action. He takes the bull by its horns. He makes the situation yield. 
And in the process, what does he do? He leans on his own sense of how to do things. He ignores what God says about how to do things. He does the opposite of what Proverbs says a wise person does. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. If Saul had known this, if Saul had believed this, the situation might have been avoided. Not only does Saul lean on his own understanding, but he also blames the circumstances. Notice this, when Samuel does arrive, and all the indications are that he's not late, he seems to have arrived the same day that the offering gets made, and it even seems to be something that only is just completed when Samuel arrives. And so Saul didn't wait the full seven days. And Samuel asks him, he says, what have you done? Doesn't that remind you of God in the, in, the, in the Garden of Edom? Adam and Eve are there, and God says, who told you you were naked? That question and accusation bound up together. Saul, what have you done? And just like Adam, Saul starts to look around. It's that moment where he has an opportunity to take responsibility for himself, and instead he says, I saw the people. They were scattering from me, right? It's the people's fault. If only they hadn't been scattering. If only they hadn't been scared. And then he blames Samuel. He says, you didn't come within the days appointed. Right? If only you weren't moving at a turtle's pace. It took you seven days to get here. This might have happened differently. And then he says, then he makes another argument. He says, I had to do this. He says, he he doesn't even seem to be sorry. In fact, he isn't sorry. He says, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering, right? He says, he says I didn't want to do this. The people made me do it, and, and you made me do it, and the, and the Philistines made me do it. Everyone made me do this, and I didn't want to do this. Man, this guy is full of excuses. Man, we are an excuse-making creature, aren't we? We always have an excuse. I panicked. I was afraid. This passage teaches us Panic and fear are not excuses to sin. (laughs) Uh, Notice this, Saul has no sense of guilt. There's no sense of remorse. There's no sense of responsibility for what he's done. He he violated God's word. He didn't wait for Samuel. He, He took responsibility of the priest upon himself as though he could be both priest and king. Now, Christian, in your life, you're going to experience moments where you will not Just blame others, but you will think that you should blame others. You will make a decision that you really regret, that you wish you didn't make. And you might sin and you might say something like like this. Why did you make me do it? Why did you make me do that? Have you ever said that to somebody? Why did you make me do that? That's what Saul's saying right now. He's saying, they made me do that. Why did you make me do that, Israel? Why did you make me do that, Samuel? And he's got his list of people that he's willing to blame. I have known more than one man who destroyed his life and his family. And you know what he said? He said, it was her fault. She made me do this. I don't think so. Nobody can make you sin. Nobody has the power to make you sin. Saul foolishly blamed the people. He blamed Samuel. He blamed the Philistines. He blamed everybody except the person who did it. 
He didn't accept responsibility. And yet, what does God say in Deuteronomy? He says, each one shall be put to death for his own sin. As Christians, we believe in the fallenness of the human heart. But we also know that we are responsible, even in our fallenness, for our sins and our failures. Israel is not only a faithless people, but they are led by a faithless king. Now, third tonight, in verse 14, in spite of all these other problems, we still see a faithful God. So Samuel gives Saul this incredibly discouraging indictment. There's just no way to to paint this one nicely. In verse 13, he says, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. And you can imagine being Saul in this moment. There's something we have to admit about Saul. Hopefully, at least, we see ourselves in the man. Hopefully, we look at Saul and maybe we don't completely relate to him and certainly don't sympathize with him. But on the other hand, we probably see our own selves and our own tendencies to deal with sin this way. And you can imagine being in Saul's shoes and having all of these excuses and thinking they are so solid. And then you hear these words. It's at this point where the bad news for Saul, strangely enough, becomes good news for Israel. There's good news for Israel here, because what is Israel's greatest need? Israel's greatest need is for a godly, wise king. That's what they need. What do they have? They have a self-centered king who's a fool. They have the exact opposite of what they need. And Proverbs reminds us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Israel needs a king who loves wisdom. They need a king who fears the Lord. And the words Samuel speaks next aren't words that will comfort Saul, but they are words that will be an incredible comfort to Israel. He says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. So this is how it happens. This is how the good news gets delivered. The good news comes right along with the bad news, almost in the same breath. Right? This is the gospel way. God tells us what we need, then he tells us how he's going to give it to us. And in this case, he says, you don't have a godly leader. Let's face it. You don't have a godly leader. You have a fool for a leader. And that's bad news. Nobody wants a fool for a leader. The good news is, I'm raising up the leader that you need. I'm raising up a man after my own heart. Don't look at things so much from Saul's perspective that this makes you sad. This should not make you sad. Not for Israel. See, when God mentions this man after his own heart, he is promising that he is at work bringing forth someone better. Now, there are two senses of the way this is going to be fulfilled. One is in the short term, right? And the short term answer is King David. David is coming, and and we will become very well acquainted with David over the course of this book. But Israel still needs to be careful how much hope they even put in someone like David once he's king, because even David has his limits, right? He's only a king. Even David can't be a king and a priest. And then as, as important as the priest is, as important as the spiritual leadership is, 
of Samuel, by the end of 2 Samuel, even David leaves us yearning for someone who can be all that Israel needs. All leaders have their limits. Samuel is a prophet, but he's going to die. He's, he's a priest, but he can't serve forever, and he can't be everywhere when he's needed. So Saul is a king, but he's a deeply flawed and foolish man. And so what do we find here is that every single person we can think of who we really need to complete Israel is incapable of completing Israel. At every turn, we find ourselves bumping into human limitations, realizing that we need someone who can be a perfect prophet and a perfect priest and a perfect king for these people. And he can't die. Because if he dies, then they have to look for a new prophet, priest, and king all over again. Here's what I want to say here as we close. In Jesus Christ, we find all of those offices fulfilled. He is the perfect prophet. He speaks every word that God gives so that we can live a life of godliness and know the gospel. We need that prophet, and that's what Jesus is. He is a prophet for us. He's our perfect priest. What is he doing? He's presenting our sin before the Father, and he's removing it from us, and he's presenting his righteousness in our place. And he's making us perfectly acceptable in God's sight in spite of our sins. And then what is he doing? He's being our perfect king. He leads us in life as our Lord and as our head, protecting us and directing us through all of life's challenges. He is our king and we are his subjects. He is our Lord. This is why we call him the Lord Jesus, because he is our king. Do you see your limits? Have you, have you begun to see the good things in your life as things that make you acceptable before God? Have you made the mistake of thinking that you can fulfill one of these roles in your own life, that you don't need Jesus? Have you realized that as well-meaning as you are, that your sin can simply not be excused the way that Saul thought his sins could be excused? The Christian perspective is this. You need to see your limits, and you need to see your sin. Do you see God as your only hope? See, Israel sees its limits tonight. Israel sees its leaders' limits tonight. And so through Samuel's words, the people are forced to find life and joy and salvation in the future king that God is sending. And I want you to see this. Only in Jesus do all of our yearnings for a perfect prophet, priest, and king come true. Let's pray. Lord, we may judge Saul or the people tonight, but would you help us also to see our own foolishness? Would you show us the ways that we make excuses for ourselves and take matters into our own hands? Would you show us the ways that we fear when you tell us not to? Would you bring us to confess our sin? Help us to be people who are humble, who bow our heads before you, and who look to the only one who can save us, the prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. And it's in the name of Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, that we pray these things. Amen.